0: entitled today's sermon a very popular phrase in the south you're not from around here are you all right so uh you know sometimes we usually if if somebody's asking directions um you, you hear them say something they don't just quite say it right Uh, It's always funny when, and a lot of the movies that are out there are the fish out of water movies, right? Beverly Hillbillies, that's what it's formed on, fish out of water. Like, it's always funny to watch somebody be put in a situation where they just don't fit, okay? And so, uh, uh, somebody taken from poor to rich or somebody from rich to poor. There, there, There are tons of movies that way, sitcoms are based around that. Everybody makes fun of people who aren't like them. That's that's what we make fun of. We rarely make fun of people who are like us. That's just our natural tendency to get in a group that looks like us, thinks like us, acts like us, votes like us, lives in houses that look like ours. That's what we do. Everybody makes fun of somebody, and it, it doesn't matter. So I, I put a little online thing yesterday because I've heard it before. Uh, just talking to some people over in Brentwood. like, oh, you live over in Murfreesboro. Do you have cows in your backyard? I mean. Did you know people from Ritwood said that about you? Did y'all know that? You are like those snobs over there, like we make fun of them, right? We make fun of them. They just think they're better than us. They think their stuff doesn't stink. All right. So just comments we make about like that. Okay. So I asked what, who else, who else do people from Murfreesboro make fun of? And uh, so a, a big response that I got was Smyrna. All right. Raise your hand if you're from Smyrna. There we go. Okay, everybody point at them and laugh. Okay. And then I asked, well, who do the people of Smyrna make fun of? And the answer I got with that was what? what? Antioch. That's right. right. People. The, <laughs> like he already knows. Like, well, of course, it's the Antioch people. Uh, I, what, do Antioch people, who do they make fun of? Look at Woodbury. Somebody said, nobody. That's the bottom of the thing, right? <laughs> Woodbury. Uh, I asked somebody from Woodbury. Who did y'all make fun of? DeKalb County is what they said. I'm probably not even saying that right. The yeah. DeKalb? Yeah. DeKalb? Oh, yeah. See, I'm not around here, eh? I'm around here. I don't know how to say it. So, uh, but we do, we always make, especially like city, make fun of that circle, that circle makes for those living in that circle. So me, I, I just got to tell you, like I went to the place when I came home from the hospital, my first home, that it literally was the end of the road. There was nobody else that we made fun of. We might call other people snobs. When I say we, I was out there at three months. Um, but. When, when I said the people who lived in that area, all they could do is make fun of people with money because it was then like this, this is hard for a lot of people to understand. My first place I went to had an outhouse, okay. We had to go outside to go to that. How many were raised in a home at any point in your life where, uh, your, your regular place of living had an outhouse? Raise your hand. All right. There's a lot of hands. Look around that. Okay. All right, now, just probably be more in the next service. How many of you have never used an outhouse at any point in your life? Raise your hand if you've never had to use one, okay? Well, a lot of you have used one, Uh, so good for you, all right? How many of you have uh, utilized that outhouse in weather such as what we had this weekend? All right, a few hands went up for that. You, You haven't forgot that, have you, John Garner? That's a memorable experience, okay? Uh, we literally, we were at the end of the road. Now, uh, there was a recording, I think I've shared this before, that my mom had on a cassette tape, which a lot of people don't even know what that is, okay? Uh, but on the cassette tape, they were asking me what I wanted for Christmas, and my, my mom really, she took, I was the firstborn, they took all the... Uh, eight millimeter movies, all that stuff. So she's recording so she can send to Santa uh, what I wanted for Christmas. And she said, this just broke her heart. I ran, they kept it for a while. I, I listened to it several times in my teenage years. Uh, and she said, what do you want? And, and I said, I can get anything I want? Yeah. I want a pair of shoes that don't have holes in them so my feet don't get wet. That was the only thing I wanted from Santa when I was even three or four years old. So that, that that's what I was born into, okay? Now, after my family came to Christ, it's amazing how your family can flourish when you're not spending a lot of money on beer every month, when, half your income, or weed, or whatever they spent their money on. Uh, but not only that, when, when your life's in order, you do a better job, you get along better, like you can just flourish. So I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, but we literally went from the poorest of the poor, Mom being raised in ad house, she, she told me she ate ashes. She was so hungry at some points in her childhood that she ate ashes um, just cause she thought she could eat those, she was just that hungry. Um, but we went from that when I was young to modern equivalent of my parents made by the time I was in high school, three to 400,000 a year. So I went from literally being one of the poorest at my school to one of the most affluent at my school to the point that went my senior year, the kids would make fun of me because they said, Willis, you got the most expensive car out in the parking lot. My parents bought a new car and let me drive it to school every day. Um, and they would make fun of me because I had new clothes all the time. I'm like, y'all don't know what I came from. You don't know it. So my mom and dad always wanted to make sure I was in the nicest because it was kind of a rebound from what, We were born into my, my younger sister, six years younger than I am. And she doesn't remember the first four homes we lived in. I can remember all of it except the first. And, uh, I don't remember the outhouse house. Uh, but what I'm saying is, is when you grow up like that, for all the people in here who raised their hand, that you lived in a house that had an outhouse at a point in your life that affects you the rest of your life. You can't take those glasses off and not see the world through those lenses at any point in your life. I will never forget the situation into which I was born. It affects how I view the world, and I must admit, it affects how I've always led my youth group or my church. And when we come to the book of James, I just want you to understand this, it hits him exactly the same way let's remember he was born into poverty uh but not only that he came from the town that everybody in Israel made fun of he was from out back he was from DeKalb County like he was from the smallest town in DeKalb County the unincorporated I'm still probably saying it wrong all right (laughs) why because I'm not from around here I still have a hard time seeing the Rutherford County like I, I, I still don't think I say it right okay um but I, I want you to see what the Bible teaches. We we read a lot of times about Jesus's upbringing. But just remember, Jesus is a, when you, whenever you read the Book of James, just remember Jesus's upbringing was also what James's upbringing. In fact, it was probably a little tighter as James came up because you had all you had at least six siblings in there living together, uh, all those mouths to feed. At least with Jesus, they only had one mouth to feed. Uh, when, when first hearing that. Uh, Jesus was a prophet. And they said, well, where's this pro- prophet from? And they were like, he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Smyrna? Can anything good come out of Antioch? Can any? D- d- that's what this was. And Philip says to them, like, man, well, just come and see. Come and find out for yourself. They were raised in the Galilean region. It was... Even though it was north of Jerusalem, it was considered out in the country. Peter is speaking one time at, uh, while Jesus' life is on trial. And the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. This was something negative about it. like they hear the way he talks and they're like, Oh, that betrays you. You're, you're not from around here, are you, you Galileans? Peter and John are appearing before the Sanhedrin, making the case for why they're preaching Jesus in Acts chapter 4. And it says, when the, when the judges saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, they were just common men. Like, they heard them speak, and they were doing a really good job, and they were like, how could these country hicks make such a great argument from the Hebrew Bible? How are they doing that? And then it said they were astonished that these country hicks, these guys that lived out back of the outback, they couldn't believe it. And they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. Now, Jesus had the PhD. That's what you called the rabbis back in the day. That was like, like saying doctor, professor, so-and-so. They recognized that about Jesus, but all the disciples he chose, they didn't have the credentials. They didn't have even a college education let alone a PhD. And so they're they're saying something is different, but it's strange that you grew up in the country like you did, but yet you're well-educated. I don't know how many of you have ever faced this, if you leave your area and go somewhere else to be educated. Um, I went to West Virginia University, but I was from Southern West Virginia. And so sometimes the people from New Jersey, the girls would say, oh, your accent's so cute. Okay. Like that's not what you want to hear when you're 19 years old. Um, When I was in seminary, my first semester, uh, I'm in a, Greek class, and a grader would always grade our exams, and give them the professor, the professor would pick them up before he came to class, and they always had to, they passed out everybody's exams except the top three in the class. And so he says, okay, third best score, had a 95 on the first Greek exam after one month, and he said the guy's name, guy went to like Moody or Wheaton or something like that, he gave it to him. He says, second highest grade was a 97, and it was so-and-so, and and then he gave it to him, and he looked down, and he went, Huh. Highest grade in the class in 98, Steve Willis. (laughs) And then he handed it to me. And I was like, why is that so funny? (laughs) Why is that such a surprise to you, Dr. Fanning? And so he was like, all right. And then he realized he just messed up. And after everybody left, I stayed after. And he said, Steve, can I talk to you? And he apologized. He said, man, i got to be honest. He says, I knew you were from West Virginia. That's who... (laughs) I mean, just say it. Like, that's what, actually, that's the number one answer I got. I said, who do people from Middle Tennessee, who do you make fun of? You know, the number one answer I got is people from West Virginia. That's what, like, it's difficult when you grow up in that, that prejudice against you just because what you were born into or how you were born. And I don't know if any of you have ever faced that, but it's uncomfortable. And a lot of times people do it to you and they don't even realize that they're doing it. And so that's in part what the epistle of James is about. He's saying to us, man, we've got to look at the culture around us. And a lot of times we act in certain ways. And what he's saying is, you people don't even know you're doing it. And again, even when he's saying, you all don't, like, this is the way he was raised. You all, you guys are middle class or upper middle class or the rich. Like, you don't even realize what you're doing to the people who don't look like you, act like you, born like you, shop like you. And so constantly what you see in the Epistle of James, you're going to see this week after week after week in this, in this uh, sermon series, is a book of self-examination. What James is doing, as Tyler did a great job, he just he brings out a mirror every single week. And he says, I want you to look in this mirror, which is the Word of God, and I want you to examine, to do a self-test, are you a faithful follower of Christ? Now, we got to understand this. The requirement for becoming a follower of Christ is just believing in Jesus as the Lord of your life and that he's been raised from the dead by God the Father. That's that's the initial requirement. Let's not make this difficult on them. Like you need to have faith in Christ. That's where it starts. But the problem is that he's dealing with, with the Jews. Is they had been raised. Watch this. They had been raised in their own Jewish Bible belt. They had been raised so often. We see this with the disciples when Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples' reaction, who came from poor families, like, well, who then can be saved, they said. Why? Because they're, the Bible certainly didn't communicate that to them. A good teaching of the Old Testament scriptures wouldn't have communicated that it's easier for the rich to get in heaven than the poor, but Jesus' is teaching, actually, it's the other way around, guys. And they're like, how is this possible? And it, they were you could just see the disciples all the time, Jesus saying, do you not understand? Do you not understand? Do you not understand? Do you not understand? It's not like these guys haven't been raised their entire life with the entire Hebrew scriptures. Do you follow what I'm saying? Why was Jesus constantly have to go to them and saying, guys, you just, you don't understand. Have you not read the scriptures? Why does he have to say that to super religious people? Why does he have to say that to Pharisees who knew every word of it? Why does he have to say it to other rabbis who had the entire thing memorized? Have you not read the scripture? They're not called a rabbi unless they've memorized the entire scripture. Why is Jesus having to communicate this way to them? Because their Jewish Bible Belt culture was such an influence on them. Their culture was so strong that they couldn't even see the scriptures for what they said. They would fight back against it like, I haven't heard this in church before. I haven't been challenged this in church before. And so, as we're doing the book of James, this is what we got to watch, especially if you have been raised in a Baptist church your whole life. When we're living here in the Bible Belt, I grew up right on the edge of it, right about there, okay? But when you're in Tennessee and you're living in the heart of this, there are a lot of things that we perceive from our culture that we think is biblical. But let me tell you what, I'm going to say it in West Virginia and Tennessee English, it ain't. There are a lot of things about our politics. We just assume, if you're a Christian, you must be this party. If you're a Christian, you must believe this way. And what we've always got to be doing is looking into the Bible and saying, man, is that true? Does this, the way I think, the way I act, the way I relate, the way I spend, is it because this is what Christ directs me to do? Because how... Christ directs me to think, or is it because our evangelical Bible Belt culture has just led us to live out our faith that way? And what James is doing over and over again to people who claim they believe in Jesus, but were raised and took their faith cues from the leaders of their Bible Belt culture. What he's constantly saying is, if your heart has been transformed by Christ, then your actions will be transformed by Christ. And they didn't get that. James is gonna say over and over and over again, you can watch how culturally religious Jews act, compare yourself to them, and you come out thinking you're okay. But if you look into the mirror, which is the Bible, and that's the standard for your life, it will reveal to you the character of God, not what your religious culture has taught you to think. Are y'all tracking with me with what I'm saying? And if, listen, I'm just trying to raise some self-awareness. I've got to do it for myself all the time. I've constantly got to be looking even at our own local church culture and saying, is the way we're doing things are the ways we are doing things at one church lining up with exactly what the Bible says. And so often, man, especially in the Southern Baptist culture, this is a big one that I got early on, like it was shocking to me when I got to seminary, I thought the deacons were the people who made all the decisions in the church. And when I get to seminary and I actually read what the Bible said, the deacon's only job was to take care of who? The widows and the abandoned ones and the orphans. They had no other job description in the scriptures other than that. And I was like, how can these things be? Surely there must be another verse in the second Hezekiah that says deacons should control the pastors because that's what I was raised in. Do you all follow what I'm saying? How many were raised in a context like that where the deacons were Provided oversight to the pastors. Raise your hand. Look at the hands. Look around you. Is that in the Bible? One, two, three. No, it's not. Where did that come from? Our Bible Belt culture. Do you get that? So this is what we have to examine. I'm going to focus on today. Let's just look in our own hearts. It's hard to know the difference between your religious culture unless you are in the word for yourself. And James is going to attack that head on. Tyler started with it last week. This is what he says. If anyone thinks he is religious, why do you think you're religious? Because you've been raised in church your whole life. But does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Your Bible belt has sold you short, he says. People that go around gossiping. He says, you call yourself a follower of Christ, but you're tearing up people with your words. Like, it might be culturally acceptable for people to sit around and talk about other people around their back, but it's not biblically acceptable. You need to check yourself in your heart. Why are you doing that? Is that something Christ would do to others? And then then he goes on. And he says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, where is this coming from? Over and over in the book of James. Big principle here. I've said this many, many times. Parents listen especially to what I say. If we see that the Bible teaches a behavior and action if we just tell people to follow the behavior and action, change your behavior, change your behavior, change your behavior, but they don't have the heart or the character change that needs to go behind that, to have a heart like Jesus, we will just turn them into religious zealots. We will turn them into a bunch of judgers. We will turn them into people who are always comparing their sin with other people's sin and thinking, My, I'm better than they are. And so when he says stuff like this, we've got to always teach our kids what is the characteristic of God's heart that needs to be the characteristic of our own hearts that causes us, that propels us, inspires us to live out the heart of God. This is what David writes about God's heart. He is the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. That's God in his holy habitation. That's the God he serves. So so to say it again another way, if we see that God loves orphans and he protects widows, then that tells us not only should we do that, but it has to be flowing out of a heart that is chasing after God. So, this is takeaway of the day number one. Our actions must flow from the character of God that has has been instilled in us by the Spirit of God. If we're doing it out of guilt or obligation, it's not coming from the right place. Yeah, I'd rather you do the right thing even if it's coming from the wrong place. But more important than that is all our behaviors should be based, need to be based, on the character of God. Y'all tracking with me thus far? Okay, now, I'm going to focus on the character of God here. I've just done take away the no- day number one. I've got four. Chapter two, okay? Here's characteristic of God I want us to pick up on today. Embrace this. Make it a part of who you are. The Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Okay, we can't be all those things. Those that are the incommunicable attributes of God. Only he could be that. But this is a communicable attribute of God. He is not partial and he takes no bribe. God says, Job records, that he shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich more than the poor. For they are all the work of his hands. Don't you understand? Like, Everybody. God loves everybody. Now, if I would have asked all of you coming into the room today, does God love everybody the same, all of you would have said what? Yes, of course he does. But the application of this principle, James is going to get to here in just a moment. Second um, Chronicles 3, the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord or partiality or taking bribes. To say again, We will not show favoritism or show partiality if we have the fear of the Lord. This is something God really doesn't like. Paul writes, God shows no partiality. He later writes, he says, from those who seem to be influential, the rich leaders of the local congregation there, he says, what they were makes no difference to me. Why does Paul say this is true of his character? Because God shows no partiality. Like I didn't go up to Jerusalem, to First Baptist Jerusalem, trying to impress all the bigwigs. Because honestly, I don't care any more about them than I do everybody else in the congregation. doesn't matter to me. He says, those I say who seem to be influential. They added nothing to me. People were just like, look at me. I need power. I need influence. Why didn't he tell me this? Like the people who want that influence, the people who want power, the people who always want to be saying, give me influence. Listen to me. Do what I'm telling you to do. Look at what Peter says about the Gentiles. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people. These Gentiles are coming to faith. They're speaking in tongues, just like on the day of Pentecost. Watch what he says. They have received the Holy Spirit just like we have. Here's the principle of the character of God. This is a big one. This is a big one. You ready for this? Take away the day number two. The devil promotes division based upon our differences Christ followers promote unity based upon our similarities. Do you get that? What does that flow from? The character of God. He loves everybody the same. The devil's always, like just watch the evening news. 90% of it is promoting unity in a country. Isn't that right? Everybody they have on there is just two divisive people trying to create a more divisive society. It's on your social media feed. I'm warning you about this now because election year is coming and the devil's not going to do any more than he can to try to get us to draw lines. So James writes this, he says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory, this is a command. Don't show partiality. Now, this past weekend we had a holiday. We were going to get it whether we liked it or not because all the snow came. But God made us all celebrate Martin Luther, Martin Luther King Day on Monday. Because in Tennessee when it snows, everything shuts down. I had a dream that we'd be stuck home for a week. That, that's the theme of this week. But I I want you to listen to one of my favorite excerpts from my second favorite speech that he gave. He says, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And the fact that I say that to you today, we being people who are just 90 miles from the birthplace of the Klan— All of you would walk in today and say, man, I totally agree with Dr. King's words there. I buy into that. I accept that. Uh, and, And I'm glad that you would say that. But let me say this. What our country by and large, what the media by and large, what the elites by and large are teaching today is exactly opposite of what Dr. King taught on that day. What they're saying now is you should give people jobs based on their skin color. You should give people jobs or scholarships because of their gender or whatever gender they choose. You should give people advantages. You should protect people as a special class because of the way they practice their sexuality. It is exactly, my friends, opposite of what Dr. King was teaching that day. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? What he's saying is, it shouldn't matter all these differences that the devil used to divide us. We need to live in this utopian world eventually where we don't focus on skin color anymore. I want to live in a world where my kids aren't judged. And guess what? That dream has not been realized. The people who would say they love Dr. King are actually kicking it to the other side. This is difficult in our society this is what he's saying, according to the Bible. Don't judge people. When, when the Bible says don't show partiality, it's saying don't judge them from the outside. That's literally what he's saying there, the little Greek word. Don't judge a book by its cover is what James, that's a command. Watch out for your assumptions. Be on guard against your prejudices. When we talk about things like D-E-I, how many of you, when I say D-E-I, how many of you, any idea what I'm talking about when I say that? Raise your hand if you, a lot, about a third. We hear a lot about this today, diversity, equity, inclusion. Now, I've got to ask you a question. Over and over in the New Testament, does Paul teach about the importance of diversity, the diversity of gifts in the local church? Does he talk about the importance of diversity regularly? The answer, that's what? Yes, absolutely. Does, he, does, does the Bible over and over talk about when someone's beaten down that those who have power, who have resources, should help them up so that they're on a level playing ground with other people? Does the Bible talk about that over and over again? Every mountain be laid low. Every valley be raised high. Does the Bible talk about that over and over again? The answer that's what? Oh, you're acting like you're not sure. Do, do I just need to get a Bible, bunch of Bible verses on that? You're like, well, I'm not sure where you're going. This might be a Democrat speech. (laughs) You're afraid to say yes. I just want you to, like, i got to catch you here. That should have been when I said, man, does the Bible talk about equity? Does the Bible talk about raising people who are poor up so their kids had the same chances that the rich kids had? When I asked that question, it should have been a yes. Don't hear what I'm saying? But you're like, yeah. Does the Bible talk about the importance of including people who are not like us? And the answer to that is what? Yes. Thank you. What I'm suggesting you, like, throw out Fox News and CNN for a minute. Just listen to this sermon through the lens of Scripture instead of your culture or your politics. D-E-I at its root is a biblical concept. It's just we've got people on the far left who are trying to change it from doing it from something that comes from your heart to become something where we're going to do it from the force of the government. In other words, we're gonna be legalists about this just like the Old Testament Pharisees and Sadducees were legalists. We're gonna force you to do this instead of working on your hearts. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? And it's got to the point that evangelicals, when I, I just watch on TV, they're like, oh man, we got all this push toward diversity and equity and inclusion. Like this is going on, or well, our country's going to hell or whatever. That's the Bible, my friends. How some people want to apply those biblical principles might be wrong, but those principles in and of themselves are very much reflecting the character of Jesus. Do you follow me? This is what James is communicating here. Our culture is trying to redefine, just like it's trying to redefine all the other biblical, the Bible. Does our culture, is our culture not trying to redefine love as how we express our sexuality? Of course. Of course. So, man, we, we, we're, gonna, we're not going to have laws that keep people from loving who they want to love. There's nobody trying to keep you from loving people. They're trying to redefine what these terms means. And those don't flow from the gospel. Whoo, I'm preaching.. Yeah. Amen. But we first see James espousing diversity and inclusion in Acts chapter 15. The Jews are like, man, we can't let these Gentiles in here. They don't follow all our rules. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't practice like us. And Paul's like, man, this ain't right. Peter's like, this ain't right. And everybody's still fighting. And finally, senior pastor James it says, stands up and said, what's wrong with you people? Why do we want to make it hard on the Gentiles? We need to be a more inclusive church. And so he says, here's what we're going to do. And then the church said, okay, you're Jesus' brother. We'll do it. It took, watch this. It took the most Jewish person among the Jewish people to convince the Jews that they had to be more inclusive of those who weren't Jews. I'm going to say that again. It took the most Jewish of the Jewish people, the most Christian of the Christian families. It took someone like that to communicate to other Jews the importance of being more inclusive to people that weren't raised like them. Y'all follow what I'm saying? In the same way, I'm, I'm going to put this picture up here. Anybody recognize who this man is? It's from back in the mid 60s. He became pretty famous for a while. Anybody recognize him? I'm going to say his name and then raise your hands if you've heard of him. His name is James Reed. Does that name ring a bell? Some of our older members of the congregation, something very influential happened within a few hundred miles of here with James Reed. He was a pastor from the Northeast. Here's a picture of his family. And those children were raised without a father. Do you know why they were raised without a father? You see, something happened back close to 60 years ago in a little town south of here called Selma, Alabama. And Dr. King was down there, and a young black man was shot by the police. He was unarmed, and he was in a restaurant. The police came in and shot him. And the news got out, and a bunch of African Americans showed up in Selma to march, and as they were crossing the bridge there outside of Selma, the police attacked these unarmed people and beat them. Why? Because they were worried they were going to cause traffic problems, is what they said. At that time, only 300 blacks in that area, even though there were over 100,000 blacks living in there, only 300 were actually allowed to vote. And so they were marching, saying, like, we can't get a fair trial because blacks aren't even allowed on juries because you've got to be registered to vote to be on a jury. So as the blacks go to march, they get beat to death. They go back over the things, like people injured seriously, and they're like, what are we going to do? And James Reeb, a pastor from Massachusetts, hears about what's going on, and he starts calling his pastor friends his white pastor friends. Nobody did anything to help the blacks who were on the march. But these white pastors show up down in Selma, and they go out on March day number two. And as they are crossing the bridge, Dr. King says, let's go back and pray about this a little more. And that evening, while Reverend Reed was out getting a bite to eat, A bunch of white thugs jumped him and killed him in the street. Three white ministers were attacked. Pastor Reed lost his life. Now watch. When he died, guess what showed up less than a week later? Military troops to protect that march. You see, a black man dying wasn't enough to get the government involved. But when the country saw a white pastor lose his life, now we got to do something. Do you all follow what I'm saying? Just as James had to stand up and say, we got to be more inclusive, a Jew to Jews, a white pastor had to stand up and say, we got to be more inclusive for the whites to make a difference. Are you all tracking with me? It takes the rich saying to the rich, you got to treat the poor fairly. It will take people with PhDs saying to other PhDs that we have to address the inequity of education, especially in developing nations. I'll show you a quick picture here. This is the percentage of PhDs in the world. If it's not at least some kind of shade color other than the, the plain white... That means it's less than 1% of their population. How, look, not one country in Africa, not in India, not even in China, are there enough PhDs to give an accredited education to the people of their nation? How is that ever going to change? And this is part of what I believe God has called me to do. It's part of why I got my PhD it's five while I got a doctor in education. How is that going to change unless people with PhDs go there and help those schools get accreditation and teach classes at those schools? Do y'all follow what I'm saying? Unless we recruit other PhDs to go with us so they can get accredited degrees so these people can get jobs with degrees that count. People of like... Have to listen. That's part of you tithing my time for me serving on the mission field. You tithe your pastor to make a difference in nations such as these. What's the end game that I'm talking about here this morning? It's this Jesus saying, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even as you love them. This is the theme verse for our church. It is one. Church, do y'all, do y'all follow me? And the, listen, I, I say this in the context of it'll be really easy when you have different campuses to say, "Well, this is how we do things at Calvary and do us and them." Well, what about us and our needs? What about us and our programs? For people at Barfield to say, what about the way we want things to be done here? What about the way we want the budget to be? And unless we all love each other the same, unless we're all looking at each other as one church family, the devil will promote division when Christ's job is promoting unity. And let me tell you about this. You want to know how the devil is speaking to you? When a church member starts doing us and them. And I'm telling you right now, like if if it's not true here, we'll be the first church that's never been true of. The devil has people placed in both of our congregations who are just looking for an opening to get in there and cause division between our one local congregation and between both our campuses. They're already there. We got to keep them out. Now, here's why I'm saying this. What is at the heart of most division and favoritism? I preached all this sermon it's 10.04. I've got 16 minutes left. And I'm just now getting to the second verse in the book of James that I've got to print that to you. And actually, though, I'm not that behind. What, what do you think is going to be at the heart of what most people fight over in the churches? Now, we joke it's about the color of the carpet. But it's not about that. I mean, selfishness is at the root. No doubt about that. What is it, what in particular gets people riled up more than anything? It's the church budget. This is the heart of the most division and favoritism in the whole world, everywhere you go. We have the saying, you want to know where the trouble's coming from? You know, want, to, want to know the inspiration for why this person, the motive for whatever they did, what they did? All you need to do is follow the money. And that's why James says, man, if a man walks in Wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and he comes into your assembly. And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, in a Baptist church is you can sit in the back row, okay? <laughs> While you say to the poor man, you need to sit up front, all right? Now, here it's opposite, I've got to say, all right? You stand over there or you just sit on the floor. Can you imagine that? Somebody coming to the church and we tell a poor person sit on the floor How does this even happen in James' culture? How can that happen in a church? Y'all are looking at me like, because it was culturally accepted to give the rich advantages over the poor. And the poor start thinking, I deserve to be treated like a second-class citizen. And so they keep a second-class citizen. They keep a poor mentality. They keep a slave mentality. He says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? Watch this. If you're prejudiced against somebody because of their money, because of their race, because of their gender, if you're prejudiced against them, when you prejudge, you follow? That is what kind of thought? Evil. That's evil, my friends, if we do that. So if it crosses your mind, man, they're driving a nice car. We need to make sure we talk to them. We need to make sure we get a visitor card from them. We need to make sure we give them it. We need to make it like if you're treating anybody differently because of the way they dress because of the way they look good looking, not so good looking if you're treating people differently because of the money they may have if you for any reason whatsoever it's evil. It's coming straight from the pits of hell. Now I'm Understand who's this coming from, Brother Jesus, who knows all about it? What do you think James what do you think happened to James when he was a young man and he came into the synagogue? Where do you think James got to sit? Well y'all are just looking at me. I'm coming at you too hard. Is that what it is? Where do you think they told James to sit when he was 24 with his family in the floor? And what he's saying is, man those Priests, those rabbis who told us to sit in the floor, those people are evil. He's not saying they're inconsiderate. He's not saying they're not just charitable. He says those people who made my family sit in the floor. Those people who made it hard for my mom and dad to just buy a couple of doves to make a sacrifice. Those people who were controlling the, the, the money changers in the temple. Those people are evil. You've got to call it for what it is. James had no problem for that. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? This was true at the founding of Christianity. It's still true today. 80% of Christian believers in the world live in poverty. Do you hear that? Why are, such a, why, why are the highest percentage of people, like far more Christians live poor in the world than rich? And that's not just world statistics. It's like our Christian by itself comes from a man who's raised in poverty. He says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you in the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Here's what he's communicating to them. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I'm going to read to you from um, my favorite speech from Dr. King. And man, we got to get this. I could spend a whole sermon just on this, these three paragraphs from him. Just read, and, and like, oh, I hate to even take time for this. Some of you are thinking right now, that man was an adulterer. Yes, he was. Moses was a murderer. He gave the law. Every time you think about Moses, do you think about him being a murderer? Every time you think about King David, do you think that, oh, King David, man, I can't read those psalms he wrote. You know why? Because he committed adultery with Bathsheba. I'm not going to read the book of Psalms. Just toss that to the side for a moment and listen to what he said here. This is, he's saying exactly what James is saying. He says, the segregation of the races was really a political strategy to keep the southern masses divided and southern labor the cheapest in the land. It was a simple thing to keep poor white masses working for near starvation wages in the years that followed the Civil War. Why? If the poor white plantation or mill worker became dissatisfied with his low wages, the plantation or mill owner would merely threaten to fire him and fire former Negro slaves to pay him even less. Thus, the southern wage level was kept almost unbearably low. One of the lowest in the nations is my commentary. During the Industrial Revolution, poor whites and Negroes began awakening to this strategy of the rich, and they began to grow into a voting bloc that threatened the power of the economic elites. To meet this threat, the Southern aristocracy began immediately to engineer this development of a segregated society. Dr. King says, I want you to follow me through this here, because this is very important to see. The roots of racism and the denial of the right to vote, through their control of mass media, never heard of that before, have we? They revised the doctrine of white supremacy. They saturated the thinking of the poor white masses with it, thus clouding their minds to the real issues involved. They then directed the placement of the books of the on the books of the South. And their laws that made it a crime for Negroes and whites to come together as equal at any levels. Did you get that? We gotta find a way to keep the poor whites from talking to the poor blacks. If we don't separate them and get them in two different political parties, we're gonna lose our economic power. So, this is why I would say listen, I'll say again, the same thing that James is saying. The devil is always seeking to divide us into factions, divide us into competing political groups, religious denominations, even within one city trying to keep pastors from meeting with one another and praying for one another. It's like pulling teeth, my friends. How are we going to have a change? How are we going to see things turn around? If we're going to address the problem of the divisions in the church, listen, rich versus poor, race versus race, men versus women, young versus old, it will take the people of differing skin colors, ages, genders, cultures, who say, I am willing to lay down my preferences and my culture and even my musical style and even some of my identity that I grew up with, so that Sunday mornings will no longer be the most segregated hour in America. This different, listen, the powers that be, they don't see any color other than green. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? So we got to separate the blacks from the Trump whites. It's still going on today. Both of these groups, Believe in the Bible. Both of these groups believe in Jesus, but they vote exactly opposite for different candidates. You vote, how can these things be? People vote against their own economic interest. And they use wedge issues to keep us apart. So you got to have people from each group, just like James had to say to Jews. People were pioneers saying, I'm going to lay down my own personal preferences. This little side note here, my dad uh, called me a few months ago. And said, man, and he's watching Wheel of Fortune. And he said, man, I'm watching Wheel of Fortune. There's this girl from Murfreesboro in there. You think you know her? I'm like, dad, there's a quarter million people in Murfreesboro. <laughs> it's not Pratt. Or my hometown, 800 people. I'm like, dad, it's in Pratt. He says, black girl. I said, I'm almost sure I don't know her then. And so he said, well, let me send you a screenshot. Maybe you've seen her before. And guess who it was? It's Scott. There we go. All right, I just just have two questions for you, Scott. How much money did you win on the show? Did you win anything? I don't know. Huh? You won $5,000? All right, that's my first question. My second question is this. Did you tithe on that money? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hey, but this is why I put this up here today. I've had that picture a long time, waiting for the right sermon to share it. Listen, she left the culture she grew up in to come here and try to make a difference. Michael and Ashley Walter left the culture they grew up in. Man, 95% of the songs we sing on Sunday morning, they never heard before they came here. They laid their preferences down because they're trying to come and actually be a part of one church. What are you willing to do that is as countercultural for how you grew up, that it even compares to what these have done for us? i will close with these ideas. James Wright, if you really, now what's, why, why does he say really? Like now, this may or may not be true of you. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, you are doing well. And this is the challenge between the two golden rules. You've heard the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you have unto you. Well, there's another golden rule that's more popular today. You know what that is? He who has the gold makes the rules. So if it's really, if you're really a Christian is what he's saying, then you need to seek diversity. If you're really a quit Christian, then you need to embrace equity. If you're really a follower of Christ, then you need to be a proponent of inclusion. Maybe not the way the left wing do it, but the way the Bible says to do it. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the laws of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Dr. Tony Evans says this. He said, maybe the reason that we haven't addressed the race problem in this country is because we don't put racism on the same line as murder. We don't look at it as the same. James continues, he says, for he who said do not commit adultery also says do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of law. Can you imagine going into court and you've shot somebody? And the judge is like, what do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, I realize I shot the guy, but you know what? I pay my taxes every year. That is, you're still a transgressor of law. You're still going to jail. And what we want to do is compare our sin to the sin of people around us. Tyler mentioned this verse last week. He says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being the hearer who forgets, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want our church to be blessed. So he says, so speak and so act as though who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Man, I hear evangelicals doing this. Nobody's going to take away from my liberty. Nobody's going to tell me what movies you got to watch or how much beer I can drink. Oh, that's the law of liberty. I've been set free to that. That's not what this verse is talking about. Evangelicals abuse Scripture too. The law of liberty means your heart is set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin to where now it can start changing to where you now start releasing your fleshly desires and you start having freedom to chase after the things of God. That's the law of liberty. That Jesus Christ wants to set you free from all your prejudices, from all your struggles with sin. And last verse, he says, for judgment without mercy is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what our last thought. When we discover who we are in Christ, we'll also discover who they are in Christ. You see, we sing songs all the time, which are good. That remind us who we are in God's eyes. Y'all follow that? We're gonna sing one right now, like, this is who I am, this is who I am, this is who I am. And what it's trying to teach us is, man, we need to have a biblical identity. But is it as much if we're gonna love our neighbors as we love ourselves? As much as we work on trying to view ourselves from God's eyes. If we're gonna love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to view others the way God sees them. Part of understanding who you are in God's eyes is understanding who, whoever the they is, who they are in God's eyes. And the answer to that question is what? We're all the same. We all share the same struggles with sin. We all share struggles with prejudices. Michael told me one thing, he says, man, one thing I've never heard a black person say is, I need more white people in my life. It goes both ways. When we discover who we are in Christ, we'll also discover who they are. And so whatever you are seeking for yourself and your family, as a follower of Christ, we must seek it for others.